Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Full Disclosure. This is the second time ever that Full Disclosure has been live streamed to YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Today is Wednesday. I'm not even sure the day. I think it's the 14th of October. Today's Wednesday. We're live on YouTube, and I'm so happy to be joined by uh, so many friends, fellow uh, listeners and and, uh, subscribers. Today we're being joined by... Listen, I normally will give you this long preamble for full disclosure, because full disclosure is fundamentally an interview. If you want to hear the thoughts of Mike, if you want to hear what I think about things, I got other playlists where I do all the talking. But tonight, somebody else is going to do all the talking, and I'm just going to be asking questions. Typically, I will start these out with a long preamble about how the views of the interviewer may not reflect the views of uh, restoring the faith and all that, but actually... I don't have to give that disclosure tonight because I think uh, Kennedy Hall and I are exactly on the same page. Tonight you're going to hear from the enemy of effeminacy himself, the champion of chastity, the purveyor of perseverance, and the bold bearded one from the cold blue north in Canada. Kennedy Hall, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful. That was some great alliteration. Very Chestertonian. Did you idea. like that? Did you like that? I did. I'm not sure what's I going did. on with your screen here. I'm going to fix it. Uh, let me just fix this. What's going on with this? Uh, you're you're big. You're you're not only big in real life, but you're larger than life. Here we go. We are fixed side by side, looking at each other. Joining us from Ontario, Canada. Now, first question. You're not in Toronto, but you are in Ontario. What else is in Ontario? I'm in Stratford, Ontario, which is named after Stratford-on-Avon in England. Um, actually, I got an article this month in Catholic Family News where I talk about my um, journey through the faith with G.K. Chesterton. Uh-huh. And one of the big things, actually, when we moved to Stratford, there's a sort of English colonial vibe to our town, which is quite beautiful. And um, there was a bookstore that had Chesterton books randomly with other – it was not a religious bookstore. 
And I started reading and listening to Chesterton in a very English town, and that made it all come to life for me. And uh, yeah, so I'm about an hour and 45 minutes from Toronto. Goodness. Okay. So is it cold yeah. right now? It's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's well, it's <laughs> nippy. It's, uh, it's, uh, I, can see my I can see my breath earlier this okay. morning, you know, it's, but it's, but it was also probably, uh, what it be in Fahrenheit? It's about 15 degrees centigrade. So, 65 or whatever in the afternoon with the sun out. Wasn't yeah, you've got, you're going to have to convert everything to Fahrenheit and Imperial uh, for all for my audience, I think. I mean, I do have some people in the, um, in the United Kingdom, and they probably think that I'm nuts for thinking in feet and Fahrenheit, but you have to do that for me. We use both here. Do you? We use both. In like colloquial expressions, you know, 100 feet, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. But then when we're driving, it's kilometers. And, but you'll say, oh, I'm a quarter mile down the road. We just We have a hangover from the pre- metric system okay okay got it all right well let's get into the important stuff kennedy hall you are an author speaker writer uh you're partnered with uh timothy and yeah tim and i work together all the time you're part of uh you're part of a meaning of catholic you guys are building a movement um tell me about that well so tim is the brains behind the operation and um uh, I have, a, I definitely have a role in it, but he is the main guy, and I, he asked me to come on for some shows last calendar year, so about December or so, and then uh, we grew a relationship, and I was looking to put out my first book. He was looking to do something with books, and we just sort of became friends. And um, being that he is from sort of northwestern Michigan, him and I uh, hit it off with most of our weather that we shared in the in common. So that was a big, and he says pop as well because it's not soda. Soda pop is acceptable, but pop is the main way to say it. And uh, so we, we bonded over those sorts of things. I don't have to agree with that latter statement, do I? <laughs> well, you're free to be wrong. I mean, everyone's free to have no error has no rights. You know that. Not free to be wrong. Okay, it's a non-essential. Let's get let's get straight into your book. We're getting some comments on YouTube already. I love your books, Kennedy oh. Hall. I've got one of them in front of me right now. It's called Terror of Demons. My favorite title of St. Joseph, Reclaiming Traditional Catholic Masculinity. All right, first question. Why do you hate effeminacy? Because effeminacy is a plague and it must be eradicated. Now, um, first, though, what does effeminacy mean? Because I realized when I put out this book, a lot of people uh, thought it meant you know being feminine or something. That's not what it means. In fact, there is no, there is no etymo- etymo- uh, etymological linkage or similarities in the Latin and Greek languages from where we get it. Uh, it just kind of turns out that way in English where you got the efem and fem, but that has nothing to do with each other. Um, it just means a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. And I realized, um, you know, the book, a little bit of a spiritual exercise for myself. Um, I am a teacher by trade. So I learned, you know, one of the ways you internalize something is when you actually try to explain it to other people. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of coaching and things. And and, and that's that's I've learned that there as well. And so I thought I'm going to write a book on it because we all struggle with it. Um, it is, uh, it's one of the eight sins that Adam committed according to the church fathers. It's, uh, you know, it's the reluctance to suffer. So, I mean, suffering rebuke from his wife, uh, suffering, uh, punishment from the devil for not giving in and the temptation and all that sort of stuff. And he, for, and he, he didn't, uh, he didn't suffer when he should have because he was attached to various sorts of things, which we all are. So, it's a primordial sin in men. So I hate it because um, I don't mean to beat up on men too much because we get enough of that. We get a lot of that from the culture. So I don't mean in that sense, okay? Um, the things that the culture beats us up for are caricatures and stupid 
you know, silly views of men and, and they beat us up for things that are actually masculine, which is the problem. But as far as the thing that we should be beat up for, you know, it's our effeminate qualities, um, not giving, you know, not sacrificing when we need to. So I, I thought I'd write about that. Okay. And now can you distinguish between effeminacy, which you said uh, essentially is the horror of suffering? I think that's how St. Thomas defines it. Uh, and femininity, because yeah. we have to, we have to, uh, I think, distinguish between those two things up front. Yeah. Yeah. So men and women are designed, uh, you know, uniquely by God, spoiler alert. So there's a perfection to a masculine virtue and there's a, there's a perfection to a feminine virtue. Okay. So when we say someone is being masculine, uh-huh. okay. We would, we would say that they're being uh, virtuous in the way that they've been created, okay? And even the word virtue actually sort of means strength, vir and virtue. They, they have the same Latin basis. So uh, vir means man and virtue means strength. And So to be uh, virtuous, actually, technically, you could translate it as being manly, okay? But we obviously apply that to women. You know, uh, I, th- I think it was St. Catherine of Siena. I always get her and Teresa of Avila mixed up but in my mind, but, uh, they said they wanted manly nuns, you know, they didn't want nuns with beards. Uh, they wanted, or nuns on the bus, but they wanted, um, they wanted nuns who were virtuous. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for women, um, having reaching the perfections of being a woman, the virtues that are perfect for that role God has created them for, that's when we would see femininity. Okay. So, and we know this in nature, for example, I mean, if you were walking, um, you know, in a forest, you might see something that's a very masculine scene. There'd be something about it that Mm. was masculine Mm. versus something that's very feminine scene. So there's a sort of metaphysical quality as well, but we see the feminine perfection is, is, is what is in women who are virtuous. Copy. I, you know, there are some people in the live chat right now who are hating on Canada. And they're saying, you know, how can a Canadian talk about masculinity? I just want to point out that I think in chapter two of your book, you point directly to Justin Trudeau. You have several paragraphs about him being like the the (laughs) effeminate man who leads a country of lumberjacks who drink strong beer and survive cold weather. And what a juxtaposition that is. So you are acknowledging that up front. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, everyone look up the Devil's Brigade. Uh, It was a joint task force between... American and Canadian soldiers. And it was in the Second World War. And I don't know if there's been a movie made about them, but there should be because they're the stuff of legend. Okay. And we're talking about men who were taken from uh, British Columbia, northern Alberta, places where it was mountainous in the Rockies. And then also men who were taken from places like Oregon, which despite Portland actually has people with virtue there. And, um, and you know, Washington and things. And they were mountain men. And they were taken to work together. It was a small number. We're talking like probably less than 50 from each country. And they were went through this grueling training and would do things like swim in sub-zero weather with no gear and climb up the sides of mountains in southern Italy. And they'd like just kill tons of Nazis. I mean they were amazing. And um, that was that's Canadian uh, uh, patrimony right there in our heritage. Unfortunately, we've got a um, total loser for a prime minister. And um, – you know what's annoying? Uh, I don't. Do you know who Don Cherry is? No, I don't. He's like our John Madden, but for hockey. Okay, great. You know, like he's he was an amazing coach, and um, has become a TV commentator. He's like eighty-two years old now. He says the odd, off-color, politically incorrect thing, thankfully, on TV, and um, he ended up getting fired from the the, the sports channel after thirty-five years. Oh, I remember it. him getting fired. I forget what it was for though. He was on Carl. He was on Tucker Carlson. He was yeah, on Tucker Carlson. Yeah. And he said in his interview, and he was right, he goes, listen, in Toronto and the big cities, it's changed. It's no longer Canada. It's this totally politically correct dystopia. Mm -hmm. 
but when you get outside, Canada hasn't changed in 50 years. And that's true. So where I live in a small town, you know, it's, it's, uh, actually some guys around here wear mega hats and, uh, you know, like, uh, love cold weather and snowmobiling and hockey and beer and just all the awesome things, you know? So yes, our leader sucks, but our country is good. Well, I'm happy to hear the, uh, last part. And I, and we will burn down your White House again, like in 1812, if you guys aren't careful. <laughs> well, we rebuilt it exactly to spec, I think. And you say we you as yeah. if you're you're part of the, um, the the UK. Do you feel an allegiance to Her Majesty? Do you pray for her? Do I pray? Actually, I don't pray for her. I should. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess uh, I like the Commonwealth sort of heritage. It's fun. I mean, uh, Charles Coulomb bond over that, I think. I see. So, so you like referring to yourself as a subject? Yes. Subject to the yes. queen. Okay. May she uh, long live the queen. All right. I want to get into your book. Can we do that? Sure. All right. So you define femininity up front. Uh, you distinguish it from uh, femininity, which is the perfection of a woman. Yep. Femininity is not a bad thing. In fact, it's something that we need more of. And you, de- you dedicate uh, some, uh, some words to that. You talk about how it destroys the male-female order. Can we go into that a little bit? Sure. Uh, I think this is this is something that is lost on the society. Uh, if you're Canadian mm-hmm. or or American, um, we essentially are egalitarian, if not feminist, and the order between men and women has been flipped on its head. What do you think about that? Yeah, <clears throat> that's true. So, man, this this is a big topic. So, um. When I wrote the book, well, when I published the book, I should say, I got a lot of um, heat from a lot of people who would call themselves feminists. Um, none of them actually read the book, of course. Uh, they literally judged a book by its cover. And that's the fun thing when you write a book. You can actually say to somebody, you just judged my book by its cover. It's a, it's, it's a literal true statement, not just metaphorical. And um, they had no – I actually pity these people. It wasn't just women. But um, – I think they believed that because it was about masculinity, that it somehow had to be something that was written against women. And I ended up having some decent conversations with some of them who, you know, messaged me on Twitter and things. And I said, no, you don't understand. Like, I wrote this book for you. (laughs) I wrote this book because you deserve, as a woman, made in the image likeness of God, you deserve to have a man who can actually treat you in a proper way, Mm -hmm. which means he has to have control of his passions and and all sorts of things that go into in the book. And they actually had no idea. Some of them were kind of stunned. They kind of went, "Wait, what?" Like they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't necessarily convert or something, but they kind of went, "Okay, like my bad. I didn't know." You know, I said, "Listen, I wrote a book that tells men to not watch pornography," and they went, "What?" And I said, "Yeah, like I don't think men should be losers." <laughs> and um, so, but the problem is in our study. I was just reading. Um, I don't know if you guys can see there. We have a little Bible quote. My my son's name is Titus, so my wife wanted to put up a quote from Titus. I don't know if we can see it. But but in there it talks – it's one of the many times St. Paul talks about obedience and the roles and the marriage and things. Mm-hmm. The thing is – and you had Hugh Owen on the other day talking about the literal history of Genesis and why that's so important. Mm-hmm. Um, because we were created male and female. And there is a uh, – there's a moral framework to how the marital relationship works. And – you know, we have this conundrum in our society where um, women often complain that their husband is not a leader or often complain that he doesn't take charge or often complain that he's not, you know, basically a hero. But at the same time, they hold on to this belief that they have to themselves 
be an equal with him and be in charge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm not talking equal in a dignity sense. I mean, let's just get that off the table. I just mean in sort of a uh, home economy Yeah, like sense. in a practical sense. In a practical yeah. sense. And it's like, listen, if you want your husband to exhibit um, characteristics of leadership, then he will have to lead. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he can't be a leader. You know, it's like there's one leader and then there's the people that aren't the leader. It doesn't mean that the leader's any better or not. You know, one analogy I love to use is, you know, I, I love rugby and I love football and, and I coach those and play those sports. And and um, the team captain is not even always the best player, but he's just the player who um, is most obedient to the coach. So there's an analogy there for your husband has to be a God-fearing man. Um, and he's the, he's the player who sacrifices himself the most. And basically the way that he leads the team facilitates greater freedom for the other players. And that's what a man is ordained to do is he's, he is to sacrifice himself, imitating Jesus Christ, and he gives the freedom to those who are under his care in order to thrive. And um, that is in the best interest of men and women when that happens. So that, and that's just something that, listen, we can try this feminist experiment for another 200 years. We want, I mean, 1850 or whatever it was with the Wichita falls or something. And we can do that as long as we want, but it's not working. Marriages are not getting better and people are not happier. And when women do encounter a man who is truly masculine, uh, it's amazing. They can be the the most stereotypical blue haired feminist, but when they encounter a man who actually um, treats them in a certain way and gives them the, this, the, 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 the respect that they deserve and acts in a certain way, it's life-changing. And that's what we need. You know, we're not going to uh, fix this sort of feminism problem mm-hmm. by complaining about it or whatever. It's going to be men just have to act right. Mm-hmm. And then because God has created this way, it will create a better relationship between the sexes. It seems like you're saying the ball is in their court and that men need to step up even if there are obstacles, namely the feminists that they're probably married to, they're going to have to um, yeah. punch through that so-called, you know, f- basically feminist barrier, the, f- the, the glass ceiling of, of feminism. I think as Father Ribiker said, yeah. points out, and I'd, I'd like you to react to this, that uh, men like to rise to the occasion of a woman uh, and, and become worthy of a woman's love. That's that's really a, a, a huge motivator in the psychology of a man, and then of course the, the the women want to be chased after and they want to feel protected and all of these things. So it's a perfectly complementary relationship, so long as it's allowed to be. Yeah, I mean, even in our stupid culture that we have right now, with you know our dumb TV shows and stuff. I mean, uh, you know that that show Sex in the City. Nobody go watch it, but I wasn't practicing Catholic growing up, and so I saw the things on HBO and whatever, and shouldn't have watched certain things. Um, but you know, I remember that show. My mom would watch it and things. And um, the most miserable moments for all the characters in that show was when they were the most feminist possible. <laughs> And then, and then when they sort of finally gave in to this good man who would treat them well and, and chase that, they were happy, you know, mm-hmm. and it was this stupid conundrum for the characters because they would just reject it. And that was sort of the, you know, that drama of being a modern woman or whatever, but they were always miserable right. unless they were in a traditional relationship, which is hilarious. And, um, you know, we can't escape it. I mean, Hollywood is as politically ridiculous as it gets. I mean, if they want to get the average person to go to the movies, there's going to be a heroic man in there doing something heroic for a damsel in distress. And it's, it's just the way that we're made. Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean, if, look, um, if you want to ruin star Wars, put a female general in charge and, and make her a, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I, I mean, it's like they, they ruin every single story by trying to be politically correct, by trying to layer in yeah. feminism, by trying to empower women, so-called. Um, and we're not even talking about sprinkling in, you know, the entire alphabet people or, or whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. Um, you talk about men, uh, effeminate men flee away from danger. Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, so I learned this from uh, Scott Hahn, I think. Um, I read something he wrote about uh, Genesis. Just a, it was actually a transcription from a lecture he gave in England about 20 years ago. Anyway, he goes through the actual words that are used to describe Satan in Genesis. And the word, I'll mispronounce it, okay, it's in Hebrew, but it's something like nachash or something. And it actually means something more, like it's a word that's 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 interchangeable with dragon. Um so we obviously have our um, mythological sort of legendary conceptions of what we would call a dragon, you know, like fire breathing and all that kind of stuff. But the word in ancient usages can refer to just sort of a giant predatory reptile sort of thing. In fact, you probably see it interchangeable with with stories about dinosaurs and things, to be honest, but that's a whole other story. Um, so nonetheless, when when Satan is presented in the garden, he's presented as like a real physical threat. Okay, it could be snake-like, could be whatever, but something reptilian. And uh, when he says, and then Dewey Reams has the proper translation of this, when he says, you will not die the death, okay, there's a couple ways we can interpret that. On the one hand, um, you know, it could be, listen, you won't die a physical death, but you will die the death of mortal sin. Or it could be that you will die a physical death, but you won't die a death of mortal sin. Either way, Adam has a choice to make. Would I like to commit mortal sin in order to not die a physical death? Right? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? Or do I want to die a physical death in order to not commit a mortal sin? So that's danger. Danger to your soul, danger to your person. And we face those decisions all the time as men. And when we're effeminate, we flee those occasions and we take the easy road. Yeah. And I wasn't planning on tying this into what we're going through right now with the pandemic, uh, the scamdemic. But isn't that, isn't that exactly what we're going through, where the effeminate men who are in charge of all of us, the Trudeaus of the world, the Fauci's of the world, are all much more afraid of dying than they are of committing sin. And so they are willing to do whatever it takes to keep your earthly body alive um, and mm -hmm. give no regard to your soul. Yep, 100%. And I would even say it's even worse now because uh, if you can walk and chew gum and use a calculator— you can figure out the infection fatality rate, and it is not what they said it was. It's not even close. So it's not even as if there's a real fear of dying mm -hmm. any more than something we've gone through before. You know, it's not it's not the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. And so now it's not even a fear. And we have our premier here, Doug Ford. His brother was Rob Ford, that infamous mayor of Toronto who, you know, got caught smoking crack and stuff. <laughs> um, he was actually a good mayor, ironically. But anyway, um, he was a good businessman and good with money and saved, the, saved Toronto a lot of money and all that. But so um, Doug Ford is our premier, which is like your governor. And he was uh, – we were we thought he was like Canada's Trump. I mean he was like a populist. Uh, he was talking about repealing the sex ed curriculum and uh, you know, he just – we called him Dougie. He's just one of those guys that you'd meet at every hockey rink with his kid at early morning practice. A regular guy. Seemed awesome. Not a liberal. Whatever. And he's become a total effeminate weasel through this whole uh, pandemic thing. But, um, you know, we're watching all this stuff happen now. And 
the fear of death is off the table. I mean, we didn't have a single person in, in Ontario yesterday die. And, they, and that's including people that get hit by buses and test positive for corona. We couldn't even find one of those in a country, in a province of 14 million people. <laughs> and Yesterday was a good day. 14 million people. Yeah. Well, there's been like an average of like two a day for six, for four months or mm-hmm. something. And, you know, well, and I saw, your, I saw, I saw you point. tweet the stats for the flu. For the influenza oh, yeah. this year so far yeah. in Toronto or in or in um, Ontario, Ontario there's the, been like none. The, the province there's been six cases. That's all of Canada. Oh, all of Canada. Now, and, and I mean, in fairness, okay, that is the 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 not the fiscal year, whatever they call it, the the year for the statistics starts in August. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there's 40 million people in Canada. I I know six people who've had the flu since August. <laughs> You know, yeah. like, so anyway, so with this, it's not even just the fear of death. It's the fear of uh, rebuke. It's the fear of ridicule because, you know, certain people are coming out and being courageous, Scott Atlas and, and guys like that and saying, um, yeah, you know, this is a crime against humanity. You're wrong. Like, you know, backtrack, you know, switch it and the lockdowns like that's the sensible thing to do. But they won't even do that. They have to hold on to the narrative because they are even afraid of being wrong because their pride is so enormous. So it's even fear of death. I can almost understand. Like you don't want to die. I don't want to die right now. I mean, you don't really want to die right now in, in that sense of the word. But at the same time, I get why someone would be afraid of it. But fear of just ridicule. It's like you suck. Yeah. You know, man up. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you talk a lot at length in your book about pride being the primary um, sin, which we all know. Yeah. But pride being the root of a feminism. Of a feminist. Of a, of a feminist. Yeah. 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 Yes, it is. Well, pride is is um, well. Okay, the devil was quite effeminate. Mm-hmm. You hear that, Satan? You're effeminate um, because inherent in effeminacy is an attachment to pleasure and reluctance reluctance to suffer. So, obviously, Satan is a pure spirit. Okay, um, but you know, as Lucifer, as the highest of angels, right? Um, there was an aspect of suffering there in submitting to God's providence and being lower than the blessed mother of having a lower uh, place in heaven than Christ who would take on a corruptible human body, obviously divine and, and human, you know, two natures, whatever. So that caused the devil. I don't know how, we, I mean, I guess you would use the word suffering. I, 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 do, I, I do angels suffer. I guess they do in an intellectual sense. So that caused him a suffering because humility really is suffering in a lot of ways, that he was not willing to withstand. And instead, he decided to have his own kingdom, um, which was just, really was taking the easy road. And it's led to nothing but misery for him and the human race ever since. So um, if pride is is the primordial sin in so many ways. But in effeminacy, um, men, you know, they hold on to things that they shouldn't hold on to because they're too proud to let go. Like I said, with these politicians, you know, um, they lie because they don't want to be wrong. Um, you know, I could keep going, but that's why pride is so important yeah. in understanding. A fantasy. So, so one of the yeah. ways that you defeat pride, and I didn't know this about you till I read it in the book, you are up at four twenty every day, zero four twenty every yeah. single day. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, uh, yeah, press snooze every once in a mm-hmm. while if the kids are may keep me up all night, but yes, my alarm is set. For and you go out back to your, uh, shed, that you say is not mm-hmm. um, air conditioned. Maybe you got a space heater for those negative, you know, forty degrees days or whatever. Yeah. But you're you're yep. hitting it hard every morning. Stay in shape. Stay strong. Why yep. is that important? Yep. 
to being a protector provider to your family? Well, for one, I don't have an arduous lifestyle physically, so I need to do that, okay? Because I, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer. I mean, I'm not like working on a farm and using a plow with an ox or something. <laughs> um, so I have to do physical things. You know, I've got a bunch of friends who live on farms, uh, who are farmers, I should say, and they're dairy farmers. And they get up. I mean, one of my friends gets up at like 3.30 every day. And he's been doing that since he was uh, in grade eight. Uh, he has a, he goes to the barn for three hours. That's sort of his chores schedule there. They got 250 cows or something, and but then he goes back to sleep from six till eight thirty or something after that. But the point is, he gets up at three thirty every day. <laughs> like, and he, it doesn't matter if he goes to bed at eleven or midnight or whatever. He gets up and he does it. And um, there's just something about his virtue and and all these men I know that it's not possible to cultivate it unless you do something hard like that. You're just not going to you're not going to develop the habits unless you do the things that develop the habits. So I realized for myself, um, especially when I wanted to write the book, okay, I wanted to get up early. Um, that's the time I can have to myself. If I get up that early, I can, um, you know, on mornings where I do work out, I can have 40 minutes or so working out and an hour and a half or so writing, whatever, praying, all the things. Uh, some days I can get two hours of work in. It was just, it was a way of me getting more time mm -hmm. in and then at the same time cultivating various habits. So I find it very important. You start the day with something you don't want to do every day, uh, which is big because then it's like, okay, the day is about doing things I have to do rather than things I just want to do. And uh, tie that into the cardinal virtue of fortitude and why why fortitude is so needed uh, and, and uh, it's really the building block of masculinity and how mm -hmm. ways that you can grow in fortitude. You, you talk a lot about mortification, waking up early, doing arduous things. Tie mm -hmm. it all together for us. So when Thomas Aquinas talks about effeminacy, he asks the question, is it, uh, is it a vice opposed to perseverance? Okay. And I think that he says that that vice is technically called pertinacity, but they're very closely linked. Um, so perseverance uh, is a part of being a fortuitous man. And basically, you know, can you, de can you demonstrate the strength needed, whether physical, moral, um, intellectual, and so forth, to push through barriers in order to complete your task, no matter the personal cost? And that's a very uh, integral part of being actually mature. Fulton Sheen said um, maturity was embracing suffering and responsibility or pain and responsibility. So in order to mature in that way, in order to be virtuous in the classical sense, which is the Catholic sense, um, we just have to, we were going to have to embrace certain physical mortifications and they have to be physical, okay? This is, you know, we're body and flesh, sorry, body and soul, and, um, you know, the flesh is weak, as Christ says. Um, this is why we have to subordinate our flesh to our will. Okay, so in order to subordinate your flesh to your will, you have to will things that will happen to yourself that your flesh doesn't want. That's how you support anything. It's kind of a crude analogy, but it's like you have to break in the horse. And one of the chapters in my book is called Tame, uh, uh, Tame the Horse. And um, it, you know, think about what your average Novus Ordo priest would say in the church today when Lent comes around. You know, don't just, don't worry about fasting from food, you know, just fast from the internet and that sort of thing. And granted, it's a good thing to fast from certain intellectual pleasures because they can be vices but you will never succeed at that if you don't first take control of your body why is that because 
you know, even me just speaking right now, moving my hands, even though it's, 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 uh, you know, infinitesimally fast. Okay. Um, I'm telling my body what to do with my mind. Okay. So when I subordinate my body to the will of my mind, what I'm doing is I'm putting a right relationship between my soul and my intellect and my flesh. Mm -hmm. So you have to do things like fasting from food. Mm -hmm. You have to do things like taking cold showers. You just have, you don't have to do it all the time, but you just have to be able to do it. Just like you do in every sport, just like you do with playing an instrument, you have to break yourself in and learn the skills. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about that is you think about someone who learns to play the violin or something. I used to play the viola. And it's actually kind of painful in the beginning. It's boring. It's hard. And it's frustrating and so forth. But then eventually you sort of actually get used to everything. And then you get to create. And then you have a cohesion between you and the instrument. And that's perhaps a good analogy between you know your body and your soul. Interesting. Um, later on in the book, you talk about women and paganism. And I was surprised yeah. <laughs> surprised to see that included in the book. Now, you talk about men and paganism, too, in, in a very different light. Yeah. And you make a distinction between those two things. I thought that was really interesting. Um, why don't you can you give a can you give a clip notes version to the audience now? Sure. About women and paganism. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, in my new book, uh, Family Be Damned right here, I um, I developed some of the themes from Terror of Demons. But this is a fiction. Uh, so I developed some of the themes, the marital relationship and that stuff. And um, so it's very hard to make women into atheists. It's very hard to make women into atheists because women are very relational. Okay. You know, love language tests, they always score on that. You know. So they're very relational. What does that mean? Well, you know, you maybe, maybe people have heard this expression or seen a, you know, a meme of it or a gif or something where women will say, when you have a child, it's like watching your heart walk around in another person. There is something um, relational about women. So because our relationship with God is just that, it is a relationship. Um, men, because we're more intellectual, doesn't mean smarter, but more intellectual, we can convince ourselves that our feelings are wrong and we can ignore them. Whereas women, a lot of the time, um, even though – and this can be corrupted to be irrational, okay, we see this – but at the same time, when they feel something, they're more likely to believe that that feel, feeling, that experience is something that's a barometer of truth. That can be very, very misleading mm. though, which is why they can be very susceptible to paganism because paganism is a spirituality. It's demonic, but it is a spirituality. And you're talking, and you're talking in the book about women are uniquely susceptible to like yoga, to horoscopes, yes. to, to those types of you know, yeah. pro, um, palm readers and those types of things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, well, yoga is a very intense physical experience, okay, um, where there is a legitimate change in your physiology and your breathing and your heart rate and all that. So there's a, it lends itself to the, the more um, sensualist personality. Um, but as far as um, palm reading and all that kind of stuff goes, well, on the one hand, women are more susceptible to become the palm readers and the mediums because they're more likely to give themselves up to new age practices because they're seeking a spiritual experience and then they'll get it, but they just don't know where it's coming from. Um, it's coming you know, from Satan. But then on the other hand, um, women are kind of inherently a little bit more positive and optimistic about things they hear. So um, you, you tell somebody something good about themselves – that is apparently from some sort of channeled spirit or something, um, and they want to believe it. Men fall into paganism in totally different ways. There's some crossover, but that's sort of the Coles notes of why that is the way for women. Yeah. 
new age, new age, new age stuff, new neo pagan sort of stuff. It's like a cult of vulnerability, okay, and um, it preys on the weak. And it preys on women who are misled, and you see that a lot. And that's why that probably a lot of our women today, because they're not being led properly by their husbands, they fall into that. So you cut out there. I can't hear your mic. Oh, I'm sorry about that. If you're just tuning in. Um, thank you for telling me. Uh, we're talking with Kennedy Hall today about his book, Terror of Demons. Um, and we're going through segments of the book. We are going to get to the second book that just dropped, Family Be Damned, which I don't even have a copy of. It's that fresh. It's that hot off the pipe, or maybe you can send me one. Um, but we were just talking about women in paganism, men in paganism. I want to move into another concept where you devote a lot of time to. And I'm, I got, I, I thought about how I was going to ask this question of you. Um, you there's a there's a section that you call um the domestic church and yeah. whenever i hear the domestic church i instinctively i'm i'm, I'm a little bit like oh you know it Cringy. seems a little vatican II, like a little you know what i mean yeah, um yeah, yeah. but yeah. but i i i dove in i powered through it and i realized what you're talking about when you define it is supplementing in your daily life that which the church used to provide for us like for example Simple things like Angelus bells. We used to hear Angelus bells three times a day at six noon and six p.m. or maybe eight noon and six p.m. Um, that's not happening. You don't hear Angelus bells where we live in our pagan culture, either in the states or up in Canada. And um, so, th- these are the types of examples that you give. And I thought that was really well done in terms of you know the domestic church. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, and yes, definitely there's an aspect where it's supplemental, but, um, you know, certain, in certain areas of the church history, there would be a plentiful amount of priests in all areas, but it wasn't always the case. I mean, in, in certain times it would be, it would have been not uncommon to go uh, weeks at a time without mass, depending because you were out far away from where the, the church was and things like that, especially in mission territory. Um, so men have always had to take on a priestly role, you know, obviously priests are like sacramentally, they're priests, they're ordained, they actually have the, the indelible mark on their soul. Um, but in a functional sense, husbands and fathers take on a priestly role in the home. So you can say they're priests of the home. And I know it is, it is kind of Vatican II, I guess, but that's, that's the thing with Vatican II. They take a lot of terms that have been used in the past and they turn them into some sort of super truism and then it ruins the whole thing, right? The way that's interpreted, I guess. Um, but you know, just practical examples, um, you you know, if you're having a, a a traditional Catholic home and you know, you're open to life and that sort of thing, you're going to have some little ones going around. You're not going to be sleeping all the time. And, and, and there's good, in order to have any rhythms in your home that are centered around Catholic piety, you're going to have to take charge and lead in that way. Okay. So, you know, we, we pray the family rosary every night. And I have a four, a five-year-old, a four-year-old. Well, he's four on Friday. My my five-year-old just turned five on Tuesday or Monday. Well, no, Sunday. Five-year-old, a four-year-old, and then I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, a one-year-old, and we're expecting our child in late February. <laughs> um, so getting the family rosary prayed is a little bit of a task. 
okay? But I have to do it because if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. And I'm not offering the holy sacrifice to the mass, but I am sacrificing something in order to make that happen so that we can give our first fruits to God, okay? We can give him our family mm-hmm. time. So men have to take that role. And then also, just on a practical sense, I mean, um, if you have a strong priest, you'll have a strong parish. Um, even if your priest is comes into a terrible parish, but he's very strong, he'll have a lot of resistance, but he'll do things to change that place. And people will follow yeah. because that's right. what you do I've with strong that. male leadership. Yeah. And in the home, same thing. I mean, uh, how many families do we know, even in traditional circles where, um, yeah, dad's going to mass, but he's not, and you know, he's, he's telling his children to go to good Catholic schools or whatever, mm-hmm. but he's not taking on a leadership role as the priest of the home. Mom can pray 50 rosaries a day. Uh, but the children are much likely, more likely to fall away. I think there was that study yeah. done once where um, if the mother kept the Catholic faith and the children were like 14% likely to continue on in the faith, yeah. but if the father kept the faith, they were well over 90% more likely to continue the faith. There's a bunch of studies like that. And um, and they also apply to things that don't have anything to do with church, like um, you know criminal behavior and adolescence and things. and. It's huge. I mean, you know, even in animals, I don't like the evolutionary stuff because evolution is nonsense. But there is obviously, you know, God created both male and, and he created men and animals. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you hear things. It's, it's interesting, actually, with the higher animals. So like horses and elephants and things, the more intelligent ones. And um, they'll have a group of unruly sort of teenage animals, you know, elephants or, or horses who are biting each other and whatever. And they just sort of, even in those, those in zoos and nature reserves and stuff, and they just bring in an older male and he just has to be there. And then they all start behaving, you know, mm-hmm. and there's something like that. There's something about that with, uh, you know, I see that in coaching too and volunteering with, with youth and stuff. And it's the same old story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Margaret Mary Young who's watching live right now, congratulate you on the baby. She's a, she's a top fan and a tremendous intellect, and I really appreciate her comments live every time she watches. Thank you. I want to move into a new uh, topic, the Crusades. You okay. talk at length in the book. I mean, look, it's not a long book, but you, get, you dedicate a fair amount to the Crusades, and you say that yeah. it's time for another crusade. Um, you do correctly identify that Mohammedism is the worship of a demon, um, you are calling for a new crusade. You are making the argument that men need conflict. Men need to fight for the faith. Couldn't agree more. Can you expand on that? Yeah. If you're not fighting for something, what are you doing? I mean, um, I don't, what's the point of living if you're not fighting for something? And I mean that, I mean, like, I don't care if it's fighting, uh, temptation, if it's fighting a physical enemy, if it's fighting a spiritual enemy, if you're fighting your desires, if you're fighting your culture. I mean, if you're not fighting for something, you're not alive. And um, the fighting spirit is a Christian spirit. You know, Christianity is not pacifism. That's a heresy. Okay. Even C.S. Lewis understood that. You know, he said, why I'm not a pacifist, one of his famous essays. And um, the Crusades is Obviously, there were problems, and it's not perfect, and no war, everyone acts, and I get it, whatever. But as far as, like, just conflicts go, it might be, and this is probably why it's the most attacked in academia, because it's the most Christian, and the devil hates that. Um, it is probably, on, as, you know, on the whole, the most just series of conflicts, as far as all the stipulations for just war, etc., um, all the boxes being ticked, that we can probably find. 
same with the Inquisition and things. People don't want to talk about that. So um, as far as the Crusades go, um, yeah, the Crusades in the past was a series of battle, were a series of battles, you know, against the Mohammedans and all that sort of stuff. But the mentality, nonetheless, has to be recaptured. Okay, whatever your enemy is. Okay, and right now we have to crusade against the devils, and the infidels, and the heathens, and the you know bastardized cultural movements that are seeking to destroy our families and destroy our souls. Pornography, impurity. Gluttony, uh, effeminate, you know, effeminate characteristics in marriage, whatever they are, it's going to take a full assault, and we're going to have to give up a lot to do it. We're going to have to be willing to make a fuss at work if necessary, in order to stand up for what we believe. We're going to have to be willing to uh, cause our children temporal suffering in order to have them change locations, in order to be in a better environment. There's just things we're going to have to do, and you know. You just have to do it. And it, and if you do encounter resistance and you are fighting, that's a good thing because that means you're alive. That means that the devil hates you and that means that you're calling him out for his nonsense and you're taking him to battle. And you need to rely on the heavenly host, the heavenly courts, the angels, you know, St. Michael especially and the Blessed Virgin. Uh, but you have to do it because if we don't do it, then somebody else is going to win. And that man who's going to win wants you to go to hell. So it's time to fight now or suffer the consequences later. Well said. Uh, the final thing I learned from the book that I didn't know about you is that you went down to Mexico City. You did the pilgrimage yeah. to Our Lady of Guadalupe. You said this is where yeah. you found God, that you saw Our Lady. Our Lady saved you. Well, or, or yeah. God willing, in the end, she will save you. Um, can you t yes, tell yes, us a little bit important. about that? Because I've not made the trip down there. I've done two podcasts about Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, I'm so fascinated by it. It seems like she's giving us her imprimatur on the um, the conquest of the new world and the conversion of souls. We just pass in America anyway, um, Christopher Columbus Day. Day, where we commemorate mm -hmm. the landing of the Spanish ships, the three ships on uh, the North American shores and the spreading of the gospel and uh, all the beautiful um, uh, things that were, that were brought to this continent, including the Catholic faith, the conversion of so many, the mission set up, especially in California. You see the, mm -hmm. the statues being torn down, I think yesterday or the day before, an, an, another statue of yep. St. Sarah was pulled down. Yep. Um, so talk a little bit about your experience down in Mexico City, Tepeyac Hill, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Oh, I love Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, it's funny, I can be all fired up and ready to go and you know, flip some tires and swing a sledgehammer, but then bring up Our Lady of Guadalupe and I get like a, like a kitten or something. Um, I was like, you know, raised nominally Catholic. Okay. I go over this in the book. So people say, what's so, you know, what was so wrong about your life? And it's like, listen, I just live like everybody else. So fill in the blank about the things you'll get into. So when I went down to Mexico, it was very providential. I had no idea what a Marian apparition was. Didn't know what it was, okay? That's what uh, 12 years of Catholic school will get you in some cases. And um, I was asked to go on the trip. I was I was seek, seeking in my faith. I was trying to take it seriously. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was trying. And a friend of mine, I speak Spanish fluently, um, and, I was, and I'm in a rural country school board in Ontario. There's not a lot of Spanish speakers out here. So it was kind of like, hey, you want to go to Mexico? You speak Spanish. We need a male chaperone. 
perfect. So I went and um, we had a week of, uh, you know, very poorest of the poor situation, shanty towns, garbage dumps and that sort of stuff. And when you go through a situation like that, I mean, unfortunately, you know, uh, the secular world turns mission trips into just social service trips. Um, but there is an aspect where serving the poorest of the poor and being around that really does help you to understand and humble you and then that sort of thing. So I went through that. And then by the end of the week, we went to visit the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And I had a monumental week. I mean, um, man, it was, uh, it's funny. It's funny. It was actually with a group of charismatics, which is like the further, I'm like, I attend the SSPX now. It was like a group of charismatics. Um, but you know what? Honest seeking God, you know, just doing everyone trying to just, you know, be closer to Jesus and that sort of thing. And, and, and we were there in this wonderful place. And, um, I can't really, I mean, in the book I go into a little bit more, um, but I'm a big guy. I'm about 240 pounds. And, um, I was kneeling on this concrete marble floor in front of this, uh, area where the shrine is. And, and, uh, I prayed the rosary through twice and didn't even feel the weight on my knees at all. And, and that's not normal for me. And, um, and when I came back from there, I was 100% a different man. I had work to do, but I was literally like, you know, the Protestants would say I was born again. You know, like it was one of those things where life was never going to be the same again. I remember like we're t- my wife, my poor wife, she had to go through all this with me. She was just kind of an average secular woman. And I come back and I'm this like radical Catholic. And, um, I remember one time we were sitting at a restaurant <laughs> We were sitting at a restaurant a couple months after I got back and we didn't have a child, but we, we were pregnant with our first child at this point. And, um, I'm looking over and I'm like looking off into space and I almost like almost crying, you know, whatever. I'm like, my eyes are tearing up and she goes, you're thinking about it again, aren't you? And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just can't get, it was crazy. It was, it was so remarkable. And, uh, so our lady of Guadalupe is my favorite thing on earth. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think she's she's often misunderstood. I would encourage everyone who's watching this, please take a moment, if you can, when you when you have time, listen to both of my podcasts about Our Lady of Guadalupe. There's some incredible detail in there. She mm-hmm. is exactly what we need right now. If you want a cure to the Pachamama, it's Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yes. She's the real mother of the Amazon. Um, okay, yeah. uh, people are asking in the live chat right now, Kennedy, how can I get this book? Now, Speaking of yes. the Amazon, I think I bought it on Amazon. Is there a better way to do that? Is there a better way for you? No, it's Am- Amazon. That's is the it. Best. Okay, all right. Yeah. Find it on Amazon. If, if you're if you're gonna sorry if you're gonna do the ebook, I do get more royalties if you go to meaningofcatholic.com um, because we have um, we have like an ebook version there for sale. Um, you can I mean, anyone who's tech savvy will figure out how to use it on a Kindle or whatever. But from if you want the easy breezy like one click Kindle thing, then of course, but. I do get more if you do the ebook from there, but Amazon's where the paperback is. Okay. Now you have a second book that's out and I want to get to that. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, I want to cover a couple other subjects just about you and where you stand on things and, and have sure. you, have you maybe do some explanations for some people. Um, sure. I just had you, you pointed out, I had Hugh Owen on yes. and he's awesome. Uh, look, he went for like three 
and a half hours with me. He was just warming up. I don't know how he did it because (laughs) all I had to do was ask a question and then I was off camera. At one point I left the studio. I went and used the restroom. I was playing with my children. I had guests come over and I served them a gin and tonic. I mean, I did a lot of things while he was talking. I hope he's not watching this right now, but, but he did all the talking for that whole time. And every, almost every thing that he was saying, he was spitting gold. Okay. You are, uh, in lockstep with him. You are somebody who is 100% in agreement with him. Can you talk a little bit about why the the superstition of creationism, or sorry, of, of, of uh, evolutionism is totally yeah. opposed to, um, to the Catholic faith and why creationism is the um, antithesis of modernism, of communism, of of feminism, of all the tie all of this stuff together the way he did. Well, um, evolution makes you effeminate, okay? And I actually wrote an article for the Colby Center. Um, it's called uh, the missing link or missing link exposed. We have a little play on words there, right? Um, uh, the link between evolution and fem- and effeminacy. Or exposed, the missing link between evolution and effeminacy. You see, evolution, um, evolution philosophically, it's, he, he, he probably explained why scientifically it's nonsense. Um, but actually for me, uh, it was Chesterton, who was my favorite author, who um, got me woke to why evolution made no sense philosophically. And he talked about, um, it's an everlasting man, which is my favorite book. And he says something about, you know, you would expect if there was a gradual progression from beasts to men. And he says, he, he talks about like even the most high creatures. And he says, it's not even that they don't begin to draw a straight line. They don't begin to begin to begin to draw a straight line. There's a, there's a total line that's crossed. That's not just a matter of degree, but it's a matter of kind between men and the animals. And it's not reconcilable with any of this evolutionary nonsense. And as far as why it makes you effeminate, well, um, embracing the theory of evolution, it, it encourages you to embrace your bestial nature. It encourages you to embrace your animalistic tendencies because you see them as the foundation of who you are because you have this bottom-up philosophy where I've heard an expression once before where um, your people are so excited today to view themselves as legitimate legitimate offspring of apes, but they are reluctant to see themselves as the fallen offspring of God. And there's something completely demonic about that. Everything the devil does is he reverses everything. Okay. He, um, you know, he sterilizes sexuality. It's a reversal. Okay. Sexuality is supposed to be, it's supposed to have great fecundity to it. Okay. Um, uh, he does this thing with evolutionary theory as well, because evolutionary theory is very much the devil's gospel because what he does is we have a top down approach where we are separate from our creator because he creates us uniquely. Okay. Evolution is a bottom up approach where we actually, um, we, 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 we actually contain pieces of our creator because it's sort of a, it's sort of a pantheistic notion. You know, if you follow evolutionary evolutionary theory through all the way, it starts sounding a lot like Hinduism, to be honest. And, um, anyway, I, I'm going to ramble too much here, but evolutionary theory is one of the most grave errors because it completely perverts the natural order of things 
which then gives rise to us embracing our bestial nature, our bestial vices, because we have a perverted view of the order of things. So therefore, we're going to have a perverted view of the moral order of things. And you fall that all the way through and uh, you get to this point where you believe that locking people in their homes for six months at a time is somehow going to stop them from getting a cold and not kill everybody else that had cancer needed treatments. I mean, it just it makes you an idiot. OK. And the thing is, evolutionary theory is a philosophy. It's history. It's not science. Science is something that you can test. The scientific method is it's not possible to study evolution by the scientific method because you can't see it happen. Which means you can't observe it, which is step number one for the scientific method. Um, so it's just sort of a total farce from the beginning. Yep, and, uh, and that's all true. Uh, if you have the stomach for the three and a half hours with Hugh Owen, it's on YouTube. It's also in Podcastville, wherever you get your podcasts. I recommend you listen to that. And then Kennedy's got a bunch of content out there as well. If you just Google Kennedy Hall on YouTube, you'll you'll hear that he talks a lot about creationism. I wanted to just take a quick break, Kennedy, because okay. we have a user who's in the live chat right now. His name's Captain Catholic, and he's saying that okay. he, his, you know, his wife. When we talk about women and paganism, his wife is into all that. She's not yet Catholic. He is. He's praying for her. I wanted to just take a moment and and ask everyone to say the uh, the Golden Arrow Prayer because it, you know, obviously by being involved in that stuff. She is um, affronting God and blaspheming against him and his authority. So I'll just quick take a quick moment because I don't want to forget at the end of the show. A lot of times we get to the end of the show and then I forget to do the prayer forget, and all that. Yeah. So I just want to do it now. Nomine Patris et Fili, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. May the most holy, most sacred, most adorable, most mysterious and unutterable name of God be praised, blessed, loved, adored, and glorified in heaven, on earth, and in hell. By all God's creatures and by the sacred heart of our Lord Jesus and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the most holy sacrament of the altar. Amen. Nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Hopefully, uh, the prayers of the entire RTF family can be directed towards Captain Catholic and his wife right now, and and that will be efficacious. Now, I want to get into your second book. I've not read it. I know that it... Perfect. You'll love it. So the first book that you wrote... (laughs) is um, Terror of Demons. You can find it on Amazon. This is, uh, this is not a novel. Your second book is a novel, and I think that that's pretty impressive yeah. that you can write both fiction and nonfiction. Tell us a little bit. Now, it's got a, it's got a racy title. It's got a racy title. It's yes. called Family Be Damned. Tell us about Family it. Family Be Damned, yeah. Family Be Damned, okay. So, um, hmm. So writing this group, sorry, writing um, Terror of Demons, I explored obviously a lot of these topics, but I thought there's something about fiction that allows you to go deeper into, well, deeper into certain topics. You know, um, you can create a scenario in a book that contains all the elements of what you're thinking of, and then you can see it through the problem and the resolution in a way that is totally within your control. Um, and you can do this with history and things, certain things turn out, I guess. But, um, I thought it would be interesting to write about how the devils use the psychology of families in order to tempt them and to damn them. So, um, the reason I call it family be damned is because it's a play on words, 
you know, and, and things that we don't care about, we say, ah, something be damned, you know, family be damned. So there's sort of the, the colloquial expression there. And that's, it's a throwaway expression, you know, like rules be damned. I'm going to do it anyway. And that to me speaks to how we view the family in our modern society. It's it's a, I write in the book actually, you know, about how the family is a competitive unit to the state and the state wants to suppress it for that reason. Um, but at the same time, there's also a, a truth there that the family be damned unless there's conversion, unless there's a state of grace, and unless there's the faith and all those sorts of things. So through the book, I, I explore those themes by following a group of four people, so a mother and a father and two children, during the lockdown. Because I also, um, you know, I am a teacher by trade, and, uh, uh, you know, I, my students came from various different backgrounds. And one of the things I was really heartbroken by when the lockdown happened is I knew a lot of kids were not going to get the help they need. And for all the problems that there can be with various schools, the reality is, is that they are a safe haven for a lot of kids who come from really bad homes. And we, we see things like abuse they're going through. Some kids, you know, they don't eat properly. So we make sure they eat well at school and and the whole nine yards. And, um, that all stopped. I mean, it was, I, I, that was why I hated the lockdown since the moment it started, because I realized that it was just disordered and that there was going to be so much ancillary suffering. Um, and you know, uh, I thought that would be a good backdrop for, and when you're home, you know, I'm a creative guy and my, my, I'm always thinking about things. So I, I was thinking about these things. So I sort of had this book already in my head about what would happen. And I wrote it. Yeah. The lockdown, obviously, everyone knows my views about the lockdown. I don't need to regurgitate them. You're living through a unique experience of the lockdown um, because, I mean, you guys are, I mean, you guys are like under We're under like stage four road, lockdown, as far as I can tell, under out of four under Trudeau. Well, um, yeah, we're in we're in like a middle of the road. We're not quite California. But we're not even close to being South Dakota. Like we're kind of in the middle. Like we got these stupid restrictions, but we can still go to church. But like it's restricted. And as of today, in the middle of October, things are continuing. The noose is tightening. So Trudeau gave you a little bit of um, a little bit of slack on that noose, but now he's tightening it up. Canada is one of the nations in the world that is headed into, I think, a second lockdown. uh, Sort of like New York and California. Sort of like parts of Europe. Um, mm-hmm. so your book is timely because it, it deals yep. with the spiritual effects of being in a tyrannical state <clears throat> and, and living in a surreality. It, I mean, it's, yes. it's absolutely a false reality to, to go yes. along with this pandemic, with this scamdemic, nobody dies from it. And, um, and, and, and the impacts to our lives from withholding our faces and masking and socialist distancing, mm-hmm shutting down of businesses, yeah. um, usurping of, of power by unelected bureaucrats in, in local municipalities. Talk, talk a little bit about how men should be reacting to that. And then um, our, our, the follow-up question after that is going to be about how men react to a lockdown in the church. Obey God over man. That's the, that's the mantra we have to have for ourselves right now. So, um, you, depending on where you live, you have to actually, let me backtrack here. There's two main reactions people have, I would say, and, and for people like us that have to the lockdown, there's a very fatalist outlook 
where we do look at things um, as if the whole thing is already planned out. And there's obviously an aspect of that. But then there's also another aspect where we can be overly optimistic. You know, we read the news and we see cases are going down or whatever, and we think that somehow these idiots in charge are actually going to follow their logic out and actually do something good. The reality is that both of those are possibilities, but it's probably going to be a combination of both. So I realized at the darkest parts of the first part of the lockdown, I mean, I didn't think we were, I didn't think we were going to go to mass until September. I remember thinking that in uh, June, I think I remember it, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. Um, I'm very lucky. Okay. Um, I attend the society of St. Pius X and, and our priests, um, even though the bishops obviously were completely effeminate around here for the most part um, and forbade even baptisms of infants and things, which I think is a grave crime against God, to be honest. But um, nonetheless, the SSPX did what they do and they're used to the pressure. And uh, we had sacraments the whole time. You could go to confession. They did weddings if you needed it. They did funerals. They did funerals for people that don't even go there. Um, and it was, actually, it was quite an evangelization tool, actually, because a lot of people were softened to the SSPX because they were there for them when, the, when no one else was. So anyway, but um, and we we could receive the Eucharist. We could attend confession. Well, well Taylor, I mean, there. not to not to cut you off, but Taylor Marshall is a perfect sure. example of that. I mean, he yes. very famously posted on Twitter and Instagram an image of the Eucharist on Easter Sunday yeah. morning. And he said, yeah. I am so grateful to God for the Society of St. Pius X because my family yeah. gets to receive the sacraments today because of them, yeah. and I repent of yeah. all the things I've ever said about them. Yes. I, now, I don't know if he really thought that went through. I think uh, that was that was like a grenade that he tossed on the table and is still feeling the effects of. Um, but it's certainly worth noting that in the United States, the Society of St. Pius X, unlike up in Canada, it sounds like where you are, they they folded largely. I mean, some some parishes, as as far as I know, in in some parts of the country stayed open. I think there were places in Florida, and Nashville, and some other notable exceptions. Phoenix, but I know that yeah. here in the heart of America, they shut down during the lockdown. So it's not it's not like uh, there's a uniform reaction to the lock to the first no. lockdown. And I want to get into the second lockdown, but there wasn't a uniform yeah. reaction to the first lockdown in the United States, um, as in in terms of what you experience. Well, no, and, and I mean, did they shut down completely or did they just not do mass but then still had, like, confession and stuff? You're, you're muted again. You're muted again. So you, there were places where they were letting, like, 10 people in, where there, you know where you yes. had, like, hundreds of parishioners um, and you yeah. had to sign up and all these things. Um, there were some places where they just shut down completely. There were some places where they got very creative. Um, it yeah. wasn't just the, the SSPX that started the drive-through masses. Some of the indult uh, diocesan yeah. masses did that. Some of the fraternity yeah. and institute masses were doing the drive the drive-in masses. So people got very creative yeah. with doing outdoor masses. Yeah. And I know, like the the fraternity of Saint Peter in Los Angeles has spent forty thousand dollars on a tent. Because all their masses are outside, even today, October 14th. I know, it's crazy. They're still crazy. offering mass outside. Now, in SoCal, you can do that 300 days a year, and it's no problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. In Canada, that's not going to work out so well. No. And, uh, yeah, and here, I mean, uh, they just worked within the rules. I mean, um, uh, the, the first lockdown, too, it caught people by surprise. Like, let's be honest, um, 
there was a lot of people who I agree with on 99% of all things, but they really thought Corona was serious at the beginning because that was one of the possibilities. I never really did, but I get why people were confused and whatever. Um, so with our guys just, they just worked with whatever they could, you know, like the fines were insane if you had gatherings over five people and whatever. So they just had you register and come with a couple family members and come in the back door and just, you know, it wasn't illegal per se, but it was just, it was just, let's do this without any fanfare and stay open and continue the sacraments. The, the, the necessary ones for salvation was the point, right? Don't die without your confession sort of thing. Um, anyway, so the lockdown the, during the, the darkest parts of it, um, you know, it, it was, it's easy to fall into like a fatalism. On the other hand, it's easy to get too positive. And you got to remember, I mean, you read history, uh, whether you're reading about the Nazis or the Soviets or whoever, and the whole, t- every, every major historical period that we read about, there's always a, a time when it really does seem like hell is on earth and it's never leaving. And then all of a sudden the Berlin Wall falls and like there was no reason for it to, you know, and. And, you know, and like, how did that happen? Right. And Charles, Cool Charles Coulomb, he talked about that and he lived through that. And, and he's my favorite sort of historian, I guess, on these things. And, and he was talking about the lockdown and he said, he says some, you know, somewhere somebody is doing something that you don't know what they're doing. And it's going to have some effect on something that has to do with something you're going through. And it might be good and it might be bad. And there's so many unknowns. So I, I would urge people, if there is a second lockdown, which we'll talk about, don't fall into full fatalism. And don't fall into trying to figure it out because both of those are going to be beyond your capacity. So earlier today, I posted a video about um, a church that was closed by their bishop in France. And this bishop basically went out of his way to shut the church. He he created a concrete uh, brick wall barrier in the doorway and cemented the whole place shut. This was in 1987 when the when uh, when the French Catholics, uh, as far as I could see from the video, there were thousands of them. There was a um, there was a New York Times article published as a result of this that somebody sent to me um, on the Facebook page, and it was very fascinating because it it documented exactly what had happened. And essentially, what was happening was the bishop in 1987 was walling off the church. He was shutting down the church as a punitive measure, as a punishment to those pesky traditionalists who had this uh, false nostalgia. Was it St. Nicholas? For uh, the, I don't know the name of the parish, uh, but they had this nostalgia for the the traditional Latin mass. And this, as a punitive measure, he shut down the church so that they would just disperse and kind of get on board with the new way of doing things. And okay. this, I, I cut together like an eight minute video from what was an hour and a half video, including the, the full traditional mass with distribution to communion to thousands of people. So it was a very long video. That particular video, Kennedy, as we speak right now, is going to be, I think, by far the top performing video on the entire channel. It's already on yep. pace to outperform everything that I've ever done. People are desperate right now for this message of what do I do? This is what men do when the lockdown mm-hmm. comes. I think, and I, I want you to react to this, I think that there is a second lockdown coming. I think that there will sure. be a second bailout that goes with the lockdown as hush money. 
um, at least in the United States, there were $3.5 billion transferred from the federal government to the Catholic Church in the United States as hush money payments to, to stay closed this past summer. Uh, Bishop Robert Barron took a million dollars. He's a million-dollar man. Word on Fire took a million dollars. Word on Fire, which is now producing a Bible in which it's one part Scripture, one part commentary. And guess who wrote the commentary? Yeah, the, the guy who doesn't believe in hell. Um, so I, I think— I think that there's there's a lot going on in the United States, and um, unfortunately, uh, we we uh, we are headed into another lockdown. And I want to get your thoughts in terms of how men should behave now that we know it's not the Black Plague, as you said. People are not really dying from it. They're they're dying with co- comorbid morbidities, right? They're dying yeah, from heart yeah, attacks yeah. and from influenza and <clears throat> pneumonia and these and these types of things. And oh, by the way, they happen to have COVID nineteen eighty four as well. Um, yeah, yeah, what do we yeah. need to do? What should what should the right and proper and just Catholic response be when the second lockdown comes, which is coming soon to a parish and a diocese near you? Well, yeah, it's actually interesting that you say it coming to a parish and a diocese because um, I have a weird feeling that they're not going to, and I might be wrong, but I have a weird feeling they're not going to officially legally shut down our churches again in Ontario. They're at such small capacity right now that it doesn't do them any good um, to do so. And we do have a constitution, the Charter Rights and Freedoms, and um, that's a whole other thing. But they, it would be a huge illegal thing to do right now with that. But anyway, Um but I do think that some of the dioceses will shut themselves down. Uh, I think the bishops will shut themselves down, to be honest, uh, before the government does. That did that the first time. So what are we supposed to do? Well, what would you do to get your family to heaven? You know, what steps would you take to get your family to heaven? Would you crawl over broken glass? Yeah. I mean, if your child, was in, if your child over the age of reason was in mortal sin, how many bullets would you take? For them to be able to confess those sins to a priest might sound a little bit dramatic um but that is the mentality that we have to have i don't know everyone's situation is going to be different some places it'll be uh very restricted and you're still allowed to go and it's weird but you can still go some places it will be completely open some places it'll be completely locked down and there'll be every combination thereof uh, some places you'll have stupid things like, you know, in, in Alberta here in Canada, okay, that's a great province in general. Um, we call it Canada's Texas. It's very conservative and oil and cowboys and stampede, Calgary stampede and all that. Um, <clears throat> their premier, Jason Kenney, who's done a better job than most of the premiers, he said that churches no longer have to have any restrictions by law, but the bishops are still denying communion on the, on the tongue, um, even at the FSSP and things. So what do you do there? Well, if you're a priest, you prudentially obey God over man and you find a way to get your faithful what they need. And, you know, what's the number one rule about Fight Club? Don't talk about Fight Club. What's the number one rule about when your priest gives communion on the tongue? <laughs> you're not supposed to. You don't talk about mm-hmm. it. So you figure that out. Um, and then if you're going to have a real lockdown, a uh, full one, I mean, I've already got plans with friends that we've, we know someone where we can probably go to Mass over Christmas. Um, I'm prepared to drive to Alberta to the SSPX there. I mean, it's a three-day drive. And I told my wife and I said, um, if we're locked down in Ontario, but we're not locked down in Alberta, we have friends out there in Calgary who go to the SSPX and we're just like, we'll drive, we'll take a road trip. 
We've got the minivan. We'll stop along the way, take a week to get there, Christmas vacation, and we'll go to Mass. I mean, the point is, is like, what are you going to do to get your family to heaven? Yeah. Okay? You're going to have to make those decisions about getting them to Mass or, or to the sacraments. So, you, you can't just roll over and you can't just, you have to fight. You know, like we said earlier with the crusade, you have to fight in order to get your family what they need. Um, and you're going to have to get creative to do so. If you are really locked down, one thing, I have an article up on the Fatima Center about what to do during a lockdown, uh, the second lockdown. And uh, I really think that one thing that you have to do is processions, um, even if there's no priest. Because in some places, the, the bishops will literally say the priests can't go be priests. Um, and that's unfortunate. But uh, we just did a, a a march, a procession at um, the Ontario Parliament with uh, the miraculous Fatima statue from the Fatima Center. Mm-hmm. And it was about 60 lay people. And it was wonderful. I mean, if we were locked down on Christmas and there was no way for me to get somewhere else, but I could get a bunch of people from the parish to, to sing hymns and carols and walk around with statues of the Holy Family or the nativity scene with candles and things like that at midnight, you know, like that wouldn't be mass, but it would be remarkable. So you're going to have to get creative and do certain things like that. Mm-hmm. What What do yeah. you think about the notion of putting um, pressure on your local ordinary, your bishop, and yeah. even taking the extreme measures of the video that I posted today about men who literally formed a battering ram and pounded their way through that concrete barrier that their bishop put up and mm-hmm. forced their way into the church singing hymns to Our Lady when they got in? I believe that that's exactly what they should have done, and I support them 100% in that sort of endeavor. Um, Listen, all authority that any bishop or priest or father or whoever comes from God. Now, this is why, you know, even St. Paul says the emperor is like the deacon of God when it comes to the death penalty, Uh, meaning that if it's a just application of it, then that authority he has to do so is justly from God, okay? But when someone acts unjustly, they don't actually have authority over you technically speaking. Now, you can prudentially decide whether or not you want to follow that because that's a matter of your decision-making relative to your situation and that's something you have to decide. So I really get annoyed when um, people just throw out these quotes about obedience on Twitter Mm -hmm. and it's like, great, you posted something from a cloistered nun. That's wonderful. Yes, she did say, I won't put the hair shirt on because my superior said no. She took vows to do everything that her superior said to do other than sin. Right. Okay. You're not a cloistered nun as a father. Right. Even as a priest, you're not a cloistered nun. You have children and you have to provide for them and you have to go to the ends of the earth to do so. And sometimes that means that your boss is a psycho and you're going to have to do something. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because a pretty famous cassock-wearing priest in Southern California – Recently came out with a letter. I mean, he published it in his oh, yeah. in his parish um, bulletin, that. and he said yeah. that you and I, Kennedy, you and I, owe obedience to our bishop in all things but sin, and that the likelihood of our local bishops leading us to sin is so unlikely that it would never happen in our lifetime. Now we're living through the age of McCarrick. We're living through the age of Father James Martin S.J. We're living through the age of Francis. The notion that our bishop would not lead us to sin in our lifetime is so laughable. And hiding behind this issue of obedience, thank you for bringing that up. Please, can you unpack that for us just for a second? Yeah, St. Thomas Aquinas, like most things, he clarifies it for us. Um, 
Romans, it says, obey your superior in all things. Acts of the Apostles, it says, uh, obey God over man. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's pretty clear. Catholicism is, is actually quite reasonable, you know, believe it or not. And you obey virtuous commands all the time. Uh, you obey uh, just commands all the time. When it comes to unjust commands, you can disobey them prudentially if they're not causing. So what I mean by that is like, like what's an unjust command that you could follow? Well, uh, well, the cloistered nun example works. I mean, if you wanted to uh, like, if you wanted to do something to take on a greater mortification or you wanted to do more reading or something that was good for your spiritual life, okay, and you knew it would be good for your spiritual life, your superior could say no for no reason. It could be arbitrary, okay? And you can say, okay, I will do what you say. You're my superior. But because that's actually of benefit to you because the point of the mortification is humility and so forth. And having to say yes to something that that is not what you want to do actually is going to help your humility grow. It's going to be another type of mortification for you. So it's the same sort of result for you. This is why they take. This is why in certain situations, cloistered nuns they take these vows because that makes sense for their position for them to grow. And that actually does merit for the people they're praying for because as they're suffering more, their prayers are more meritorious. So that's why that makes sense for you and I. Um, obedience means following lawful authority. So, okay, let's take a, a, a non-essential. Listen, I hate masks as much as the next person. I hate them. I think they're dumb. I haven't worn one yet except that the doctors. I'm lucky we have exceptions here. You know, we actually – Canada's weird. We're very middle of the road in a lot of things. Um, we have human rights exemptions, whatever that means. And in there, human rights code uh, is creed. Not even religion, just creed. So uh, one of the guys that I like to follow with this conservative guy, he pointed this out and he said, my creed is that I hate the government. <laughs> so I'm not going to do what they say. And, you know, there's no way to disprove that in the way that the legislation is written. Anyway, okay, but let's say, let's say that, um, let's just say that your bishop or your priest or whatever said, listen, they're going to shut this Latin mass down if we don't at least wear our masks and we like walk in the door. You know, people watching and all that kind of stuff. You could make the decision to say, okay, I'll put on the diaper for a minute and just so that we can like just not – you know, sometimes it's okay to go into catacombs. You don't have to go and get martyred every five minutes in the streets all the time. That's a non -nego That's a negotiable. That's a non-essential. But then if your bishop said like you're never having communion on the tongue again, nope. That's wrong. Can't say that. That's from that's from Satan. That's not from God. So that's a command where you as a priest would have to get your spine a little bit strengthened and you'd have to say, we're going to do this anyway. Or if you were faithful and you were like, well, you know, the SSPX down the road or the, the diocese over or something like that, they're going to do it the right way. Then you'd be strongly encouraged to follow that option because you can't bend the knee to something, you know, is subpar. Um just because your bishop has said mm -hmm. so. And you can follow these analogies out a hundred different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I want to I want to get your reaction to two things that I released on YouTube last week. And I think that they were pretty interesting, if not revolutionary ideas that some people had not yet put together. The first is that there is a clear link between the idolatry of the Pachamama in Rome and the birthday yep. of COVID-1984. 
And what I pointed out was that several virologists, epidemiologists, and academics had actually defined the birthday of COVID Mm. not as being January as we were told by our government here in the United States or the Chinese government or any other government, but that the birthday of COVID-1984 was actually the day in which the Pachamama idol was worshipped, for lack of a better word, or venerated in the Eternal City. So that's the first piece of news mm. that I want to I want to get your reaction from. The second is mm. that what I, I call Black Sunday. Now I wasn't tracking the diocese up in Canada, but I was tracking in, in early to mid March. I was tracking the closures of masses according to by, diocese by diocese in the United States. And on Sunday, March twenty second is what I've been calling Black Sunday. Black Sunday was when yeah. all masses <clears throat> in the United States were canceled, all public masses anyway. Same here. Um, March 22nd, 2020, is exactly 50 years after March 22nd, 1970. And on March 22nd, 1970, which was Palm Sunday in 1970, the forced implementation of the Novus Ordo Mise, the new mass, the Volga Rite, uh, from Vatican II, was implemented in the United States. So in the U.S., 50 years oh, to wow. the day, to the exact day, cr- on the Jubilee year. 50 years is normally a Jubilee. <laughs> it's normally a celebration. In 2020, we had no celebration of Vatican II. We had no celebration of the new rite. But on the 50th anniversary, Kennedy, of the implementation, with exclusionary language of, you will implement it on this day, or no later than this day, mm-hmm. God canceled the Novus Ordo Mise. God canceled the Mass. Um, so in in full knowledge of Our Lady of Akita and right. what she said would happen to us, and um, the, the, the Pachamama leading to COVID-1984, the same birthday, the canceling of the masks, uh, of the mass, the wearing of the masks, the, the, the Novus Ordo um, yeah. stuff, the, the, the socialist distancing, all of that. What are we to make of that as men, as masculine men? How do we cope with all of that? Oof. Um, well, it's funny. Uh, as soon as this thing started, so I've got a, I've got some friends who are very uh, like, I mean this in a true sense, like kind of mystical. Like they're the kind of people that they'll call you and say, "I had a dream last night," and it's like, "How did you know that's exactly what I was going through?" I mean, like they're very prayerful and they're. You know, anyway, we were talking and, and um, man, I felt like a darkness had descended on the earth when this thing started. Like one thing that struck me, too, is um, Corona means crown, you know, and, and um, I just thought, man, we've we've uncrowned our Lord and we've 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 made we've enthroned this virus as the king of our as the unholy sort of king of our world. And then that, that virus is sin and you know, so on and so forth. And I thought there was a weird linguistic corollary there. I did not know it was to the day of the Novus Ordo. That's crazy. So I listened to a sermon um, by the priests from the missionaries of St. John the Baptist in Kentucky. They're wonderful priests, Father Shannon Collins and another gentleman, I can't remember his name. And he did a sermon called The Divine Interdict. And he basically said, you know, when the masses were shut down and things, he goes, 
Like this is an interdict God's putting on the world where everything is stopping because we are so sinful. We are so sacrilegious. Our masses are such abominations. Um, you know, it's all clown mass and whatever <clears throat> that, and you know, it's just, you're going to stop for a while. You don't get to have this anymore. You can't have nice things if you treat them this way. And he said there was actually something positive in a sense where it was going to be the first time in a long time where there wasn't going to be widespread Eucharistic abuse. <laughs> it was going to be the first time in a long time where there wasn't, uh, you know, Marty Hagen songs uh, belling out of the choir lofts of every place. It was just true, actually. Now, we didn't learn our lesson in some places. <clears throat> but on the other hand, the connection you make there between um, Pachamamas is striking. Um, what do we do? Man, I, honestly, this is going to sound like a cliche and annoying answer, but all we can really do is pray like crazy right now. That's all you can do. I mean, like you do have to – listen, you're going to have to do the actual like smashing down the doors like the, you told me about those Frenchmen and stuff. Um, you are going to have to do something like that at some point for your faith. Okay? I don't know what's going to happen where I live. Uh, it, we could just coast by. But somewhere on earth – uh, pretty soon, you know, crises like this, you know, like it's just like the Great Depression, which we're facilitating a second one of those and that sort of thing. When you have moments like this, you do have massive societal shifts. And when and depending on where you live, there will be a massive societal shift. And if your government is half decent, it could go the right way. And if it's not, it could go the left way or the wrong way. Okay. And because of that, we don't know what it's going to look like. So you might live in a place where in the next few years you might have to get out of Dodge or you might be martyred. That's a real possibility. In order to face those trials, wherever God has put you, if you are not tethered to the rosary, which is your lifeline to heaven, um, then, you know, you'll probably fail. So for the time being, with all the unknowns, you just have to pray your tail off. And um, for me, there's no other way to do that than by praying the rosary. Amen. Well said. Kennedy Hall joining us from Ontario. Thank you so much for your time. Author of Terror of Demons Reclaiming Catholic Masculinity and uh, another book that I don't have in physical copy here. It's fresh off the printers. I can't wait to get my copy of it. Family Be Damned, a novel, a novel about the corona lockdown thank you text me your address and i'll get you one okay i I, hey i'm gonna do that because i'm cheap but thank you so much thanks for joining me um we already said a prayer for for, um for one of our listeners um for for captain catholic why don't we say one more prayer kennedy for all the men and women who are watching that they would discover authentic masculinity authentic femininity um let's say I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Holy Face lately, but why don't we just say a Pater Noster and an Ave Maria? In nomine Pontris et Filii, Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Pater Noster, quis in Celi, Sanctificetur, Nomen Tuum, et Vignet, Ragnum Tuum, Fit Voluntas, Tua Sigur in Celo, et in Terra. Panem Nostrum, Quotidianum, Da Novis Odie, Dimitri Nobis Tevita Nostra, Sicut et Nostimitimus Tevitoribus Nostris, Enenos in Ducas in Tentationem, Se Libera Nosa Malo. Ave Maria, Garanti, Plena Dominus Tecum, Benedictus Tuiberibus, Benedictus Fructus Ventris Tui Jesus. Dei, Ora Pro Nobis Peccatoribus, Nunc et Enora Mortis Nostre, Amen. Nomine Patris et Filis Victus Sancti, Amen. Kennedy Hall, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you.